for illustrating the one thing that all preachers wish would be illustrated. This is a momentous occasion for me. If you got out five minutes late, it's not always because the preacher talked too much. (laughs) Just saying. So thank you for that. Hey, we're going to come together as a church as we always do and pray this morning. And we want to pray for um, our transition. We want to pray for Dre's transition. So I'd like to actually like to ask the elders and any of our ministry staff here to just join me on the platform for a moment. Uh, Deanne, if you'd like to come up too, you can. We're just going to take a moment and pray together uh, for this family as they move back to Idaho and for us as a church as well. So um, worship team, we're kind of done. If you guys want to unstrap and just sort of come around too, we're just going to pray together uh, and lift ourselves and one another. Uh, as a family to God. So would you please join me uh, in prayer uh, for this family? Come over, Dean. You get center stage too. (laughs) I know. She's like, I don't like center stage. And I'm pointing it out, which is just awesome, right? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much um, for your goodness um, today and every day. It's been expressed already in a number of ways this morning. And um, numbers of us, uh, certainly those of us on the platform, many of us sitting in the pews this morning as a church family, we have lots of thoughts and feelings, but we bring all of them before the ancient of days. The one who never changes and the one who has all things sovereignly in his hand. And I want to pray uh, for the Selah family and I want to pray for us as a church. God, first of all, for the Selahs, I pray that you would lift them up in a powerful way for Drath and Deanne, that they would in these next few weeks and months um, as never before, God, would you grant them to be people of vision and of faith. Um, The vision to see beyond the circumstances of the moment, which especially when there's a move and all sorts of other things involved and a job change can seem overwhelming. But Father God, these things are of the moment. I pray that you would give them the ability to see past the pressure that screams for the attention now, to be able to recognize that life is not made in a moment or in a month, but a whole life is lived for your glory and a life lived for your glory will be celebrated for all eternity. And I pray, Father God, that that vision would fill their hearts and their minds, and also that you would give them the faith to trust that vision, and to trust that every good thing you've ever done up until now, as Drath even said earlier, is from you. It's from your goodness, and that goodness will continue whatever form it takes. And so, Father God, sustain our brother and our sister, we pray. Sustain uh, Ashlyn and CJ as they move, this whole family, we pray, knowing that you have plans and purposes for them that you have fulfilled up until now. We pray that you would continue to in the future, and give them the grace to trust that. And Father, for us as a church, I pray that you would make us a people of vision and of faith to recognize that we are a family and none of us is here apart from you. The, the only reason we're here is because you brought us here. The only reason those of us who are your children are your children is because you've given us the ability to see you for who you are. And so you have plans and purposes for us being in this place today. And so every good thing we can thank you for that has led to this moment is just a testament for what you will continue to do in your goodness and your faithfulness. God, as a church, help us to be a people of vision that see beyond the stuff of this life and live as a witness for the day in which you will come back and wipe away every tear from our eyes. A day in which it will be, as you say in the Bible, no more mourning or crying or pain. A day where we might say that we finally say goodbye to goodbyes. That's the day you're making. That's the day we live for. And we pray that you would help us to be the people of vision and of faith to trust you for that. Fuel our faith even now and our trust in you. Redeem lost souls for your glory this morning. We ask all of these things as people of vision and people of faith in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. 
Uh, Sandy alluded earlier to the fact that the stage looked a little different last week than it does this morning. I'm actually a little disappointed in that. I mean, our, our amazing volunteers did exactly what they're supposed to do in setting up this cool place. And if you were here last week, you saw it and then taking it down. Uh, if you haven't gotten a taste of it, let me just invite you once, once the service is over to turn left and look down the children's hall. Uh, it still looks like an African savanna. And I, that is the coolest thing in the world. I love the vacation Bible school time period because it just puts so much of the energy and the creativity of people on display. Not, not that people get glorified, but, but because doing something like vacation Bible school, um, when dozens of volunteers, the 50 or so that Beth mentioned who were here all week, plus dozens more of us who contributed to making this past week happen, we're all putting forth, spending time and energy and money to create a place for 140 kids to understand who God is and to experience his love and be taken beyond in their own thinking their daily experience in a powerful way. And that's an act of love. It really is. It's an act of love to give yourself to other people because you love God. And so every time Vacation Bible School comes along, I see that happen. Love expressed in all sorts of creative ways. Like I walk out in our atrium and I see two support pillars that are holding up the roof. Some of you see trees and you transformed those into trees last week. It was cool. I see like orange construction paper on the floor and some of you see African savanna and it goes up on the walls and the place is just transformed. It is awesome. It is fun. It's creative, but it is also an act of love to those children and to their families whom God himself loves. So, man, if you had anything to do with Vacation Bible School this year, thank you on behalf of those families, those kids, your church. Um, I don't think I'm too bold when I say on behalf of God. Uh, thank you for loving people because you love God who loves those people. That's who we are as a church at Harvest. That's who we want to continue to be. And so I just want to encourage us uh, in that. that. That kind of rightly motivated love in action is actually one of the core identifiers of the real Jesus. And that last statement I just made is one of the major points of uh, the book of 1 John that we are studying together. And I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn to 1 John. Uh, this morning we're in chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. First John is a book that equips Christians to see the difference between the real gospel and counterfeits because eternal life hangs in the balance. This is not a small thing. It's a big thing. Eternal life hangs in the balance. And as it turns out, as we've read through this book together, real Christianity is characterized primarily in the book of First John by three things. Curious, uh, I haven't had us reciting these, but many of us have been part of the series from the beginning and we're now closing out in the end of it. So I'm curious if we can remember what these are. Anybody remember the first characteristic of real Christianity is that it is true to the original. Excellent. The second characteristic, it produces obedience. Very good. Obedience to Christ. And then lastly, it also produces love for one another. Can you say those with me? It is true to the original. It produces obedience to Christ, and it produces love, especially for our fellow Christians. That's what this entire book has been all about. And John, the apostle, just kind of repeats these themes and interweaves them differently. I've highlighted the latter two because in this brief little five-verse paragraph this morning, he brings both of these themes together and shows us that they're actually really not separate things. To love God is to obey God, is to love God's people, tangibly. This is all a mark of what the gospel really does in a person's 
heart. And so we're going to look at this together this morning. The love of God begins with loving God's children. There's really two simple but very profound points to the sermon this morning. First of all, that, that love, the way John is using that here in the Bible, the way he's using that word, consists of two ingredients, both the motivation and the action. That's our first point. We'll talk about that in a second. But then that really leads us to the core point of this morning, and that is that the two ingredients actually interact with one another. The right motive redefines the experience of love. This is what sets Christian or Jesus-like love apart from every other way we use that word love in human experience. So let's get into this together and see what God has for us here. We start in chapter one, or sorry, chapter five, verse one, and I'm going to drop into the middle of the verse. We'll come back to the very beginning of the verse later. He says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of the Father. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, if you've been reading in 1 John so far, a lot of this sounds familiar. There's nothing really new here at first. What he says is, the one who really loves God is going to love those who are born of God. Now, now, he's already kind of made that point multiple times in this book. For example, just last week, uh, chapter 4, verse 20, um, the Bible said, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For um, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So this, this idea of connecting love for God with love for God's people is not new, and it sounds at first like John is just repeating himself. However, if we read a little bit more carefully, we notice there's something else going on here. There's something actually a little bit surprising, uh, a little bit unexpected in his statement. What he says here is not, we know that we love God when we love his people. He said that before, but that's not what he actually said here. That's not what I just read. He said just the opposite. We know we love God's people when we're loving God. I have to confess, earlier in the week, that sort of caught my attention. I'm like, he hasn't said that that way up to this point in the book. So what is going on here? Those kinds of changes in language are meant to catch our attention and make us think in a fresh way. In fact, it almost seems to be the exact opposite of the logic that we've seen so far in chapters 3 and 4, where a core message of this book has been, you know, you know you love God when you're loving God's people. The true gospel produces love for God's people. It flows that direction. Now John seems to turn that on his head. He says, and guess what? Here's how you know you're loving God's people, when you love God. <laughs> what, is he just talking in circles? What are we supposed to make of this? I think ultimately what this is pointing us to, what this is trying to get us to think in a fresh way about is love's motivation. The motivation behind my active love for brothers and sisters in Christ. If I consider myself a Christian, yes, he's already made the point that that's supposed to work itself out in tangible, visible acts of love for brother and sister in Christ. But what motivates those actions? That's what he's trying to draw attention to. What motivates those actions. You see, the, we all recognize this, right? I can, I can do the actions of loving somebody else, or we might even say I can go through the motions of loving somebody else without it really coming from a heart that's been transformed by God and his love. 
Like it's possible to actually obey God's commandments and do what he says without it coming from deep within. There's all kinds of motivation to do loving actions towards somebody else. Boy, that person looks a little bit down. I'm gonna take some time out of my week and invite them out to coffee and sit down and talk with them. I'm gonna give them some time to connect with them. Well, good for you. That's the right thing to do. That's a loving action. Now, why did I just do that? Why did I choose to make time for that brother or sister in Christ who may be struggling with a difficult time in their life? Well, there could be lots of reasons. I could be doing it out of guilt (laughs) because the truth is I'm thinking of the last 10 Christians that I've seen in my church who have been struggling with personal stuff and I haven't made any time for them and I'm feeling guilty about it. What kind of a Christian am I? I haven't even made time for them. So here comes this one and I'm gonna actually make time for this brother, for this sister because I feel guilty for having blown it last time. That may or may not really be an expression of love for them as much as it is an an attempt to assuage my own guilty conscience. It could be guilt or or it could just be a, a garden variety sense of duty and obligation. I mean, maybe the experience of guilt isn't real strong, but there's just this kind of sense that, well, okay, I'm, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm Christian, and, and the Bible says if you love God, then you're going to love people. Okay, I get it. So we're supposed to love one another in, in sort of tangible, practical ways. So, okay, I get it. That's what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's, 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 it's my duty. It's sort of an, an act of the will, and it may not be driven by God's transforming love. It could be guilt. It could be duty. Or lastly, I mean, it could even be pride. (laughs) Kind of a sinful pride, right? That one's always seeming to lurk under the surface. This is maybe the thing where, like, I want to be seen by my fellow church members as somebody who is doing what God says to do because that makes me look good as a Christian. So I want that person who's hurting to see me caring for them because that shows that I'm not just that selfish Christian who's all for himself. I mean, it could, there's so many like weird motivations in a sinful heart, isn't there? What John is trying to do is get us to understand the motivation behind our loving actions toward one another. Because our aspiration as a church at Harvest is to be known by how we love one another. That's an aspiration. Why? Because it's very clearly the will of Jesus Christ who is the Lord of this church. He said in John chapter 13, um, the night before he was crucified, he instructed his disciples in verses 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I have for you, love one another. Then he went on to say, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for one another. We're supposed to be, as a church community, distinctively marked by the way that we actively care for one another. There's a lot more going on in church relationships than sometimes we realize as individualistic Pacific Northwest Americans. We're to be marked by how we love one another. That's a mark of the genuine gospel. That's where John got all this. He got it from listening to Jesus teach him. But you see, we can't be marked by genuine love if we're just sort of reaching down within ourselves to do the right thing out of duty or obligation. You don't just start attending a church and say, well, this is sort of the ethic of the place. People hang out and care for each other, so I guess I'll do that. It has to come from a different place, the place of transformation that God is working in our own lives. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Our first ingredient is of, of real love, according to the Bible, is, is motivation. Is my motive coming from a place of God's love in me coming out through me to transform the actions that I have toward other people? 
we might say it's all about motive. It's all about motive. Then again, as much truth as there is in that statement, I probably just overstated it. It actually isn't all about motive. It's a lot about motive, but it's also about action. It's also about action. That's our second principle here, the second ingredient, as, as, you, as it were, of, of real love. It is not only the right motive, it is also right action. And John makes that clear in this text. If you're reading with me, uh, again, in verse 2, he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. When we obey his commandments. That's what shows that real love is taking place here. That's what real love is. In fact, he goes a step further in verse 3. He gets even more explicit. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That we do stuff. That action comes out. He goes so far as to say that's what it means to love God, to keep his commandments. Now, if you think, like, well, that sounds like a pretty strong statement. It is a strong statement. Where is the Apostle John getting that from? He's getting it from Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples, plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, period. And the one who, he later said, abides in my commandments, abides in my love. If you love God, you obey his commandments. You obey his commandments, you love God. These two cannot be separated. And so John here says, this is what it means to love God, that we keep his commandments. That doesn't mean that love is only action. If you just sort of read this verse separate from everything else in the Bible, it could almost come across as kind of like reductionistic, right? Like there's nothing else going on that's important. As long as you're doing the action, it doesn't matter how you feel inside or something like that. And that's, that's not the idea at all. Love is not only action. That's not really the point here. But the point is that real, full, mature love always, always results in action appropriate to the situation. It always results in action. We know this. Even in our general society today, you know, we, we have sayings. We have kind of like little modern proverbs, you know. We say things like, you know, words are, words are empty, right? Um, actions speak louder than words, those kinds of things. That's what the Bible's getting at. It doesn't mean that action has no feeling in it or it doesn't come from a place of, of true care. We've already seen that. The motivation is important, but so is the action. You know, it's when I say, like, I love God. I just haven't really gotten around to fully obeying him yet. <laughs> the Bible says we're kidding ourselves. You don't fully love God if you're not obeying him. Now, that point's already been made multiple times throughout this book, so we'll just leave that there. But, but you see what John's doing? He's pulling things he's taught already together to sort of summarize it and begin to end this book and get us to look at it in a new and fresh way. All this talk about loving God and loving his people, like, what does that mean it means right, action, uh, right motivation combined with right action. And notice, by the way, how that reshapes everything we do as a church community. Let's, let's be really practical for a couple minutes here. What does that mean, like, worked out? What does that look like? What it means worked out is we do things that God wants us to do, and we do them for the right motivation. For example... It's possible to join your church and become a member of this church out of a sense of, of obligation or duty. 
It's also possible to become a member of this church as an act of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as an elder in this church, let me emphatically state it's the second one that we're after here at Harvest. It's the second one that we're after. We have 225, 230 something members of this church. More people than that attend here regularly. But so many of you have taken the step to become formal members, to like go on record saying, I'm, I'm in, I'm committed. You can speak into my life. I will be here to speak into your lives. I'm gonna support this place. I'm gonna be part of what's happening here. And that simple declaration itself with right motives is an act of love. It's so exciting for me to see not only newer people come and find a home here in our church and formally join it, but to see many of us who have been kind of functionally members for many years take that formal step and say, I'm signing on the dotted line. Not because I'm supposed to, as much as because I want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. The difference between those people is the difference of those who are really getting what it means to love and be loved by God. You see, you start to realize that Church membership, even though we use the word membership, functions real differently than most of the memberships we're used to experiencing in a modern suburban context. Uh, Many of us have gym memberships, Costco memberships, you know, whatever. I've got a gym membership, and I buy in. By the way, there's one difference right there. You don't have to pay the church to become a member, but that's not even the main difference. I, I buy into my gym membership so that I can get something from it, right? I'm paying for access, to the gym and equipment, all the facilities. That's what the membership is, and that's what it should be. The gym is a business. There's nothing wrong with that, but a church is something very different. To be a member of a church isn't primarily motivated by what I'm gonna get out of it. Do I get access or special treatment? Do I get a greater voice and say and authority in the church? Some of those things go along with church membership, but none of them are the heart of it. And I'm so proud of the members here who have caught the idea that to actually become a formal member is an expression of love for one another. It's to go on record and say, you can count on me to be here and be with you and for you. I'm part of us. Let's do this Bible thing together. You see, Jesus sees the church, the Bible says, as his bride. His bride, cherished, adored, And when Jesus' heart is in us, we come to see the other Christians in our church more with his eyes. We don't see a collection of people who happen to choose the same church and sit in the same building to listen to the same music and the same sermon at the same time. We see brothers and sisters in Christ, people for whom Christ died, for whom he gave up everything. So we join a church not because a pastor says it's important, that's obligation, or because we'll get some sort of influence or status that's benefit but primarily we join a church for the sake of Christ's cherished bride. What we perceive that we will benefit from it is is a secondary thing. Church membership is an act of love. Let me give you another one. Being involved in relationships within the church, which is one of the things we commit to as members, itself is an act of love. I think of our community life groups, our small groups ministry here at Harvest. This past year we had over 150 people, 150 of you, regularly involved in getting together um, on Sunday evenings or midweek on a weekly basis, most of the time, that's what we'd prefer, to talk about the Bible and, and do life together and bear one another's burdens and, and just iron sharpen iron, live the Christian life together in community. I can't tell you how encouraging that is for me as a pastor in this church. 
to see that many of us being in one another's lives, knowing what's going on in each other's lives and helping meet one another's needs, sometimes before myself or the other elders even know there's a need that's already been met. And I say, yes, the church is being the church because people have committed to these groups. And let's be honest, all of us that have been in a community life group, it is inconvenient sometimes. (laughs) I'm just gonna say it. it, it's true. It's true. It's super inconvenient if you have kids that aren't old enough to stay home on their own yet. Really? Another night out? Every week? I gotta hire a babysitter? That can get expensive. Do I have friends? Do I wanna ask for, oh, it's just easier to stay home. Even if you don't have young kids. Man, so many times my community life group, uh, the one that I'm in, I don't lead it, um, meets on Sunday evenings, and man, there's so many Sundays, it's like, whoa, time to go to community life group. Man, do you know how hard I worked this morning? You guys are like, dude, you talk. (laughs) I go home tired, okay? Uh, (laughs) I got all sorts of wonderful excuses. I'm tired. I don't really feel like I want to go to community life group tonight. I want to chill. I want to put the game on if there's a game to watch. I want to do something to just relax, you know? But okay, so, you know, I go. But you see, the problem with that thinking is I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about what am I going to get out of this? And am I perceiving ahead of time that I'm going to get out as much or more than I'm putting into it? It's a, it's a me calculus. But love doesn't think that way. What if God wants me to go so that I can encourage or pray with or affirm somebody else? What if it isn't about me at all? I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone to our community life group and people have started talking about the Bible passage and, and, and what's going on in their lives and how they're seeking to apply it and where they need prayer and where they're experiencing victory and I'm just like amazed and I'm like, whoa, that's going on in your life and I'm seeing people connect with one another and care for one another and I'm just like watching all of this going, what did I want to stay home for again? <laughs> I leave so incredibly encouraged because of what God is doing in the lives of other people. You see, it's often inconvenient with schedules, but you see, we commit to relationships out of love for one another. By the way, while I'm on this topic, last thing on this, it's a significant act of love to lead a community life group. To those of you who are involved in leading some of our community life groups, you are my heroes because you're taking on extra responsibility uh, to, to create space, a space that wouldn't be there. Like We wouldn't have community life groups without those leaders people that take on extra responsibility to coordinate and organize and lead a discussion and create space for people to connect relationally and grow spiritually, let's face it, it's a lot easier to show up and let somebody else lead a community life group and enjoy the fact that I can connect with friends and brothers and sisters in Christ than it is to take on that responsibility myself. And those on our church, the many people who do that, are doing it as an act of love for Christ and for their brothers and sisters in Christ to create the space where God can move. This next year, we want to have more community life groups because we have a need for them. But of course, more groups means we're going to need more leaders. And maybe if you're a member here in good standing, maybe God is calling you to step up and take leadership or partial leadership of a community life group, not out of duty or obligation or simply whether or not it fits or you'll get something out of it, but as an act of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, motivated by God's love in you, resulting in action. Christian, how is God directing you to love his other children better 
right now? How does he want me, how does he want you to love my brothers and sisters in Christ better? And let's start with those who are right here in our local church family because that's where God wants us to start. Um, love for brother and sister in Christ isn't limited to the local church. It can extend to extended family and friends and, and even other churches and around the globe. It's actually one of our values here at Harvest to be connected with other churches and connected with Christians around the world. But we live day in and day out together as a family right here. How does God want you to love brother and sister in Christ right now, today, this week? Is there an action involved? Is there a motive that changes it? How could you take that step of action from his power within you rather than on your own strength? That's what we're thinking about. You see, the reality is all of us as Christians can relate to the idea that I don't love my brothers and sisters in Christ the way I should, if we're honest. I don't. I was really convicted earlier this week when I recognized that there was somebody in our church family who I could have, and when I reflected on it more after I got done justifying and rationalizing myself, could have and should have loved tangibly better than I did. It was something they were going through last year. We can all relate to that if we're honest with ourselves. The problem, of course, is that, and I just want to pause before we get the second point and finish the sermon, because the danger is that as Christians, we hear everything that's being said so far. I should love the right actions, the right motive, and I don't. And so what do we do? We get determined to do it better. Um, we get committed to making sure that we're doing the right thing that God wants us to. We've been talking about these three roads all throughout the book of 1 John that we're all tempted to get on. There's the road of shame, the one that says, oh, I know, I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm reading the Bible, you're right, I don't love, I should, I'm selfish, I should, I join, I should lead, I should, I should, I should, and I don't, shame on me. And that's just like a ball and chain, right? You try to gin up the effort to move on, but there's always the voice in the back of your head accusing you for being a stupid, lousy Christian who doesn't love the way that God loves him or her. The road of striving is kind of the opposite of that, although we can experience both at the same time. That's where it's like, I'm doing this thing. Right? This is the willpower road. I don't love my brothers and sisters in Christ the way I should. I'm going to, and I know exactly what I should do, so I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to start New Year's resolutions in July, and I'm going to start meeting with people more and spending more time and giving more money and doing the right things. All of which could be good actions, but what's the motive? Is this coming out of a place of, of like me determining to just be a more loving person and I get on that treadmill and I go and I go and I give and I give and it's so tragic because sometimes you encounter people, Christians, who have been doing this in their churches for years and because nobody can see what's really going on inside their heart, on the outside they look really good. They're giving, they're always available, they're wonderful, generous people and so they just get praised for their generosity and that just encourages them to run harder and harder on the treadmill and two, three, four years later they just burnt out. They're totally burnt out and that breaks my heart, absolutely breaks my heart. When they're like, I'm done, I can't do it anymore, Usually, it kind of looks all of a sudden to other people. They'll just disappear. They'll just stop coming to the groups, stop coming to the Bible studies, stop coming to church on a Sunday morning. Oh, no, love the place, love you guys, just got busy, you know. Just, and the truth is, they're, just, they're fried. They're exhausted. That's not the path of life. 
to avoid these two extremes, lastly, some of us just choose the road of settling. Some of us just choose the road of settling. We're like, okay, (laughs) I'm not going to just spend all my time in guilt. I can only do what I can do. And I'm not going to get on that treadmill and run it because I'm not going to burn out. I got a job, I got a family, I got this, I got that. And so I'm going to give God what I can give him, and that's what I can give him. And hopefully that's good enough for God. So I read these like absolute ideals in scripture of how we're supposed to be transformed by the love of God and giving and serving with joy and I kind of go, yeah, that sounds great, but whatever. I mean, nobody's supposed to like really do that, right? Because this is all I can give. We sort of settle for this kind of mediocre, check off a few boxes and feel okay about myself, Christianity. None of these three roads are gonna get us to the path of life when we realize I should love with better motives and better actions. What we've seen repeatedly is, I need my construction vest again. You knew this was going to come out at least one more time. John, the apostle, is writing this book, and he's getting himself tied up in his microphone cable. John didn't have to worry about microphone cables, you know, back in the first century. It was awesome. He's putting on his little vest, and he's saying, like, roads are closed. All of them. Don't, don't go down those roads. I need, like, my stop sign and my hard hat or something. He's just like, detour. <laughs> He's constantly directing us away from these roads of shame and striving and settling and saying what we need is a deeper experience with Jesus that transforms the heart that changes all of the obedience. How does that look? How does that look? Well, now there's the question of the morning. And that's our second and final point. God's love transforms duty into delight. Oh, this is so important. Let's look at this for a moment. Verse, the end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4. He had just said, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And then look what he says next. His commandments are not burdensome. That, there's your vest right there. Your bright orange like, you know, stop. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking, think about this differently. The commands of Jesus are not burdensome. That means exactly what it sounds like. I mean, it's like just heavy, uh, wearisome, toilsome. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus gives us a lot of commands to follow, and they're pretty high, steep commands. The Bible is not saying it doesn't take any effort or work to obey Jesus' commands. It takes quite a bit, actually, to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to take the investment of time, sometimes money, skill, whatever, it takes a lot of work. What he's saying is that that work is not, it's not a burden. It's not a weight. It's actually joyful. It's fulfilling. It's not a toilsome thing. Why? Verse four, he gives us the answer, the beginning of it. For, that's a very important word, by the way. <laughs> For, because. This is the reason that following Christ's commands turns out to be not a burdensome thing. Why? Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He goes back to this idea of being born of God. We talked about this earlier in our walk through the book of 1 John, the doctrine of union with Christ and regeneration. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God moves inside you. God does not just forgive your sins and restore relationship with you from the outside, so to speak, although that happens. In addition to that, he also transforms the inside of you and I. He moves in with his spirit and he starts actually making us different 
kinds of people. We become identified with him. We are born of him. He said earlier, God's seed is in us. It's as if God's DNA is within us. We are now his children. There's a spiritual transformation that every Christian experiences. That's what he's going back to now. And when we've done that, we realize that God has poured his love into me. He's moved me from death to life. He's given me an eternal hope and a new purpose and a new identity. And if you get your heart and mind around all of that, it changes everything. It changes everything. And if everything is not changed, maybe I haven't gotten my heart and mind around the miracle of the gospel. What he's talking about here is alchemy of the heart. That's the title of our our sermon this morning. Alchemy of the heart. Uh, Medieval European alchemists were famed for pursuing the philosopher's stone, a a, a mythical substance that, um, among other things, they thought would turn base metals, like lead, uh, into precious metals like silver or gold. Now, wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) If you could find the magic chemical secret that would transform um, just mundane things into beautiful things and fairly worthless things into incredibly valuable things. Of course, they never succeeded. They never found the mythical substance. But what if you could transform the mundane and disappointing into something amazing and beautiful? Friends, that's what the book of 1 John is all about. Jesus is the universe's ultimate alchemist, except he's not working on metal. He's working on stone. To borrow an analogy from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, the stone of the human heart. He's transforming hearts that are all about us and sin into hearts that are about him and glory transforming the mundane into the beautiful. And the way that that expresses itself here is that it transforms the duty of obeying Christ's commands into delight. Why? Because he's changing me. The kind of thing I think John is talking about here is fairly well understood by all of us. Like, we know this, even even apart from God, life illustrates this principle. Um, this past weekend is an example. Uh, I was not here with you guys because I was off fishing for three days with a group of a couple of us that are here and some other guys. And so we're like fishing all weekend. And I had a great time. Some of you might not have. Had you been there? Maybe not your thing. That's okay. I mean, I suppose if you look at it one way, I can understand, right? Um, it takes planning. It takes money you got to buy a couple permits. you got to, you know, pay for food and gas to get over there and whatever. So you're spending money. You're spending time. Once you get there, you're sleeping on the ground or you're spending more money so you can sleep on an air pad, which is better, but it's still not your bed at home. <laughs> um, you're not showering for three days, which is less awesome when you hang out with other people who are doing the same thing. I come home and there's the inevitable scrapes and bruises, right? I'm like, where did that one come from? I got all these scrapes and gashes here and I got this big shiner on the inside of my knee. I think that's from when I slipped on the river rock and went straight down onto a nice lovely bed of river rocks. That's gonna hurt for a couple of weeks. Wow, that was awesome. There's sore muscles. And of course, there's the uh, dodging of the inevitable rattlesnake here or there that live in the canyon over in Central Oregon. You should ask Steve Kirby about that one. Um, Steve and I were actually walking last week, and I said, hey, I got this spot I want us to fish. Why don't you, we're up above. Why don't you go down the bank and fish there? I'll go like 20, 30 yards downstream and fish there. He's like, great. I get down there, I'm doing my thing, and I realize, oh, this isn't the spot. I wanted to go a little 
further down river. So I grab my radio, I have radios to talk. And I'm like, hey, Steve, I want to be a little further down river. Um, you want to meet me back up at the top of the bank and we'll go down there? He's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, okay, where are you? He's like, I'm at the top of the bank. <laughs> Why are you at the top of the bank? I thought you were fishing up river. So I go up there and I'm like, what are you doing here? Was the fishing no good? He's like, I never fished there. Why didn't you fish there? Because I got three quarters of the way down the bank and put my foot right next to a bush and heard, big rattlesnake. He's like, whoa, two bounds. I was right back up, you know, 20 steps down, two steps back up. <laughs> I think I left my hair down there. I mean, it's just like on fire. I'm back up away from the snake. I'm like, see, aren't you glad I told you to go down there? And I went over here where there was no rattlesnake. That was awesome. Who wouldn't want to do that? Pay money to sleep on the ground, hang out with a bunch of smelly, unbathed men and dodge rattlesnakes and get sore muscles. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Some of you are like, awesome. Some of you are like, you people are freaks. Here's the point of all of this. All of that stuff is true. I don't enjoy sore muscles and scrapes and bruises. I definitely don't enjoy rattlesnakes. But I'm willing to put up with it all because there's something much more in the experience of being on the river and being with guys and just doing a weekend like that. I love it because there's more to it than just the sum of the constituent parts, you see? The love of the experience transforms what might look like burden and duty into a delight. Parents, we all know the same thing, right? You know, before you have kids, you're at church or at a park or a grocery store or an airplane, and you see somebody over there with a little baby, and all you think is like poopy diapers, screaming kid, right, sleep deprivation, and then you become a parent, and you realize that, yep, you get heavy doses of all of those things, and you're like, seriously, who wants to go through that? But of course, as parents, we all know that there's something much more going on there, isn't there? I changed a lot of booby diapers when my kids were babies. <laughs> um, happy to say I haven't really done that since. You know, that's just not an activity I go seek out. <laughs> Don't really find any pleasure in that at all. Do I look back on when my kids were infants and toddlers and see sleepless nights and incessant crying and poopy diapers? Eh, I remember it. It's not what I see. I see two beautiful young adults now who are growing. I see them. I see Love transforms duty into delight. We get how this works, right? Okay, now add God to the mix, and suddenly it starts getting real. It starts getting very real. When his spirit moves into a Christian's life, the love he has for his own people moves in with him, and it starts working itself out. That's the basis from which I love my brother, not the basis of guilt or striving or settling. John's saying, no, 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 don't go there. Go all the way back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. When we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. William Coper was an 18th century British poet and hymn writer who put this beautifully in one of his verses. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. John is saying the gospel changes everything. If I start with Jesus and what he has done, not with myself and what I have done or not done, then a transformation begins to set in. It, it, it's an alchemy of the heart whereby the love of God for me and in me transforms obligation into joy, duty, into delight. How do you get in on that deal? As we close this morning, let me go back to where we started. 
Because there's a simple answer. And the Bible's answer is faith in Christ. I told you I'd come back to verse 1. Let's look back there briefly now. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's our word, believe. We've talked about what that means, not just assent to here, but you commit yourself to Jesus as your saving Messiah. Something changes. You then are now born of God. And he started the paragraph that way. He now ends it that way. Look at the end of verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There it is again, our believing in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world? John asks a rhetorical question, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You want to know how to get in on this overcoming the world, alchemy of the heart, transforming duty into delight thing? It all goes back to are you banking on Jesus or are you trying yourself to live for him? That's the conviction for me. It all centers back on 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which we've repeatedly said is the theological heart of this book. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not only to forgive it, to change my relationship with him, but to cleanse me from it, to actually make me less of a sinner, both internally and externally. The gospel is the promise of salvation. And for all of us that have been walking with Jesus for five years or 45 years and just tuned out and said, right, I got that one. No! <laughs> so often we don't have it because we think we're in a relationship with Jesus, but we're living on our own power. I think of that person who I didn't love as well as I should have last year, and I realize, like, okay, I'm immediately going to, okay, here's I'm going to justify myself, here's why I didn't, and then eventually I kind of got over that, I'm like, okay, here's what I need to do about it, and never once did it occur to me to pray. By the way, I'm preparing this sermon the whole time. <laughs> Finally, toward the end of the week, it like it dawns on me. Maybe I should start confessing my lovelessness as the sin that it is. And instead of trying to gin up the right amount of love in my own heart, let me ask the God of love to forgive me and to put his love for this person in his heart and just let it come out. And then freely choose, not duty, but obedience to Christ out of love. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, God is calling you to himself through the only means possible. Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death on your behalf. If you want to know what it means to start a relationship with Jesus that will secure your eternal destiny and transform your present life, many of our elders and pastors will be down here after the service. We would love to sit down and have a conversation with you either this morning or later this week. Please come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. And Christian, if you already know that gospel and you've banked your identity on it, many of us have, we need to let go of shame, striving, and settling. Go back every day, multiple times a day sometimes to that verse, John 1, 9, reality, beginning and ending with who Jesus is and what he's done, not who we are and what we can or cannot do. Confessing our lovelessness to him as sin. Praying for his forgiveness and pleading with God to cleanse us by filling us with his spirit, his love for his people. And then seeing that play out. Friends, when we do that, we will be a church that puts the love of God for people on display in actions as well as words that communicates the gospel in word and in deed. That's our aspiration because that's our Savior King's aspiration and we're all about him. Would you pray together with me? Father, we pray for the glory of God to be seen in this church in a new and powerful way through the love of people but that's a love that we can't manufacture ourselves. We understand that. 
God, the gospel is so clear, it's so simple, and yet so often it is contrary to our first inclinations to trust you and rely on you. But Father God, I pray that we would do that. That now as we sing, as we um, pray, as we leave this place, Father God, I pray that you would transform us. That you would receive the willing, um, open hands of a grateful people who are just begging you to display yourself through us. And Father God, I pray more and more that, that your name would be glorified as we love one another the way you have loved us. Not that people would look at us and say, wow, what a bunch of swell loving people. But that people would look at us and say, what an incredible God. And it is to your glory and for your name we sing now in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? And we're going to worship our God together.